They don't see their need for a Savior. They feel like everything's okay between them and their God, that they're good enough to somehow be accepted before a holy, infinite God when God says they are not. So throughout this gospel, the Lord Jesus will teach that he is the fulfillment of the law, that it's not enough to be born a Jew. You must be born again. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, An Introduction to the Gospel of John. Yesterday, Pastor Carl gave us some background on the book of John and a brief look at the Apostle John as he gave a historical perspective on the times that are addressed in this book. As we pick up today, Pastor Carl begins to exposit the first few verses, beginning with the fact that John equates Jesus Christ with God. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. After becoming one of the Lord's disciples, John is absolutely convinced that this one we call Jesus is God in human flesh. John knows that Jesus is God, and he simply tells us here what he does know. Please note how the chapter opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now understand, for a Jew to write such a thing, to equate the Word, whom he will identify in this chapter as Christ himself, to equate the Word with God, if it were not true, would be the most horrible thing a Jew could ever do. It would be blasphemy. In the beginning, though, he says, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in the beginning does not refer to a definite start, but really an indefinite state. In fact, in the original, the article, the is not there. It just says in the Greek text, in beginning. But we add it so we can grasp it and make it a little bit more readable. In beginning. He's referring to an indefinite expanse of timeless existence. In the beginning, the one who had no beginning, that's the thought, the one who had no beginning in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, and he will give that creation to the Lord Jesus here in verse 3. His point is, is that there was never time when Christ was not. Now, children, I hope you understand that. We don't celebrate at Christmas the Lord Jesus starting his life. There was a time when you and I didn't exist and you started, but there was never a time when Christ did not exist. Now, there was a time when he didn't have a human body. That's the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But there was never a time when he was not. He was the pre-existent creator of the universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God. Now, it's interesting, this word was, it's an imperfect tense, and the imperfect in the Greek New Testament does not really deal simply with the time of time, that is past, present, and future, but it deals with the kind of time. The imperfect is something that really transcends time because John is taking us out of the realm of time into the realm of the timeless. The one John here calls the Word belongs to the realm where time really doesn't exist. Christ has a dateless past. He is the eternal God. Now, if you stop and think about it for just a second, all of the heretics, all of the cults have trouble typically with two basic truths. One, that Jesus is God, 
And secondly, with the doctrine of the Trinity. You can find out a whole lot about what a person stands for as to whether he embraces true, orthodox, historical, biblical Christianity or something else just by what he believes about John chapter 1 and verse 1. Typically, the cults deny the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet, really, here in the opening verse of this chapter, God puts both of them together. Now, it's not distinctly a New Testament doctrine. It's taught throughout the Old Testament. Every Jew on every Sabbath recites the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We don't worship as Christians three gods. We worship one God manifest in three distinct persons. The New Testament also affirms that. Even the demons, James writes, believe that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And yet, even in the opening verse in the Bible, the Bible affirms the idea of plurality. Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God, Elohim, it's a plural noun, created, and then he uses a singular verb, the heaven and the earth. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God is represented by a plural noun, and yet he is associated with a singular verb. Any Hebrew person reading that in the original, it would arrest your attention. In English, we'd say, oh, that's bad grammar. In Hebrew, we'd say, typically that's bad grammar. But God was communicating an essential truth embedded in the Old Testament is the doctrine of the Trinity. One God and three persons. So there in Genesis 1, God doesn't say, let me make man in my image, but let us make man in our image. Now, I'm not saying that the doctrine of the Trinity is easy to grasp. It was Charles Fuller who once said, if you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you'll lose your... You'll, uh, he says, if you try to figure out the doctrine of the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. If you deny it, you'll lose your soul. <laughs> and I think he's absolutely right. It's an essential doctrine of Christianity. But it's one that we can, to some degree, understand. Now, we have little puny, finite minds, and we cannot fully grasp the infinite God. But yet, the triune God made up a triune verse, universe that's made up of space, matter, and time. You can take everything in the universe and put it in either space, matter, or time. Space, for instance, is triune. Length, breath, height, matter is triune. Uh, there's energy, there's motion, there's phenomena. Time is triune. There's past, there's present, there's future. Now take time, for instance. There's past time, there's present time, there's future time. But the present is not the past. The past is not the present. The present is not the future. They are distinct, and yet they are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Take spatial relationships. There's height, there's breadth, there's width. This pulpit right here, right there at that spot, is that height, length, or width? You say, well, it's all three. You can't separate the three. You're absolutely right, yet the height is not the width, the width is not the breadth. They are distinct, and yet they are inseparable. And so right here, in the opening verse of his gospel, the Word was with God. He's stating a sublime truth here, that Jesus is equal with the Father, and yet he is distinctly different from the Father. You cannot identify him as God the Father, because it says here, he is with God. Oh, but someone would say, if he is with God, that means he's not God. And so taking any ambiguity out of the argument, John emphatically says, the word was God. That is a clear, emphatic declaration that Jesus Christ 
is God. In fact, it's emphasized even more in the original. In Greek, the way you emphasize things is you take something out of their normal word order and you change it around. And again, you wouldn't expect it to be written like this unless you wanted to emphasize it. But literally, it says God was the word. You can't get any more emphatic than that. You want to get rid of the deity of Christ? You cannot. God puts together here three statements and he ties them in a tight knot. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now look at verse three. All things came into being by him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Lord Jesus Christ is the creator. Not only did he exist before Bethlehem, he created the vast universe, including the material from which Bethlehem was made. All things were made by him. He is the instrument of creation. Nothing came into existence apart from him. Again, the Greek text is more emphatic, and literally it reads, if you had an uh, interlinear Greek New Testament, you could read it. It says, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. The little baby born in the Bethlehem manger is the one who holds the universe in place. The one who died on a cross of wood made the hill on which that cross was planted and the tree from which it came. John is telling us here in the opening three verses something about his nature, something about his person, something about his attributes that all point to the fact that he is God. He has all of the essential characteristics of deity. Can God create a universe? Can he speak a hundred billion galaxies into existence? If he can, so can't Christ because he is the instrument of creation. So he is a supernatural person. He continues here in verse four. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And so in describing his person, John introduces us to two of the simplest yet most profound concepts in the world today. Light and life. Now, life is the word zoe. We get our word zoology from it. Light is the word photos. We get our word photo or photography from it. And these things are so common, we tend to take them for granted because life and light are everywhere. But John wants us to know that Christ is the source of light and life, that in Christ is life. Now, if you're here today and you're empty on the inside, and you're looking for meaning, I want to tell you, you will not find it in religion. You can search until you are blue in the face. You can come to church for the rest of your life, but you will not find it in religion. You will find it in a relationship in the source of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, men will try to find meaning for life in what they own and the relationships they have and the status they may obtain. They will very often try to find life in the creation rather than in the creator himself. But the wise man will seek the source, the Lord Jesus. But not only is he life, he is the light of men. You must go to the source to have light to be able to understand. Now, the world is described here in this first chapter as being in spiritual darkness. And you see it everywhere. There's the darkness of the religious mind. So many religions today ignore the Lord Jesus Christ, the source. And very often, even wise and intelligent people will embrace all kinds of falsehood. I was watching on public TV on Friday night. We don't have much selection. We get a couple of channels, but we get public TV. And there was this fellow, Wayne Dyer, on there. Have you ever seen him? Bald guy, kind of a religious philosopher. 
I mean, this guy is out in left field. And he's got this massive audience of intelligent people, thinking people, who, mm, this is good, yeah, really. It's so far from the truth. It was absolute heresy what the man was preaching. There's not only the darkness of the religious mind, there's the darkness of the philosophical mind. Those who ignore the Lord Jesus Christ and they speculate all about life. And there's certainly the darkness of the scientific mind who finds life in a big bang and the creation rather than the creator himself. But in him, the Bible says, is light. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, this word comprehend is an interesting word. It literally means to take down, to write down. Uh, maybe you could picture it in these terms. Suppose you have a sixth grader whose mathematical skills go as far as long division and multiplication. And then a college professor comes in to lecture on the subject of calculus. And so he listens to the lecture, uh, the, the lecture on calculus, but he just can't take it in. He just can't take it down. Now, people are like that. That's the point. They cannot comprehend it. Someone said to me, boy, pastor, before I came to the Lord Jesus Christ, I was in darkness. I don't know why. I just couldn't see. The reason you couldn't see is because you're in darkness. The darkness just can't comprehend it. The darkness just can't take it in. That's why God has to open your eyes. And that will be a major teaching that John will give. And when you understand this as a Christian, I want to tell you, before you talk to men, you'll talk to God. It will cause you to fall on your knees because you recognize that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draw him. And so only God can open your eyes to the light. Now, there's something that's true of spiritual light that's not true of physical life, light. Um, my family and I, a number of years ago, visited a place in North Carolina called Linville Caverns. Anybody been there? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah, a handful of you here and there. Well, if you've ever been there, at least when we went, it was a family-run business, and it was a rainy day and not a whole lot to do. And so we went and visited this place, and they brought us to the cavern, and they brought us down into the deepest, darkest bowels of the cavern. And, and then the tour guide said, now, for some of you, you're going to experience something that you've never experienced before in your whole life and that you may never possibly experience again. And for me, that was the first time I experienced it. It was the last time I ever experienced. And he said, I'm going to turn off the lights. And he said, you will be in absolute, total darkness. He turned off the lights and he was right. I mean, I took my hand and I waved it in front of my face and I could not see it. Little gray Santa, she's only about seven at the time. Who turned out the lights? And, and then Jordan said, I got to film this. And he turned on the video camera. And as soon as he turned it on, light came into that cavern. The minute the light came in, the darkness went out. But in the spiritual realm, it's possible to have both spiritual darkness and spiritual light side by side. Sometimes there's a husband who's saved and the wife is not. Or maybe there's a saved man at work and next to him is an unsaved man. And he says, I don't understand why you don't believe I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. I live right. Doesn't that make me a Christian? And you tell him all over again and he just can't see it. He just can't comprehend it. That's what John is saying. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not comprehend it. So here is Christ, God of very God, the creator, life itself, the source of all light, the light of men. That's his supernatural character. 
Now he goes on and he begins in kernel form and he's going to unfold it in this whole gospel, but he introduces us here to Christ's supernatural work. Now God doesn't want men to stay in the darkness. The Bible says he wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.5 says God desires all men to be saved. He wants men to be saved. He wants to save them. And throughout the Holy Scripture, we find God comes to the rescue. God takes the initiative to open man's spiritual eyes. Now, initially, he does it through what theologians refer to as general revelation. That is, that revelation, that information that is generally known to all men, whoever they are in the face of the earth, through creation and through conscience. And so Paul will say in Romans 1, God's invisible attributes, his divine power, his eternal nature are clearly seen through what he has made. No man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because the Bible says he has clearly spoken in creation. But Paul also argues God has not only spoken in creation around us, but he has spoken from our conscience within. He says the Gentiles, the pagans, who don't have the written law of God, they're a law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, either accusing them or defending them. So they do what's right, and their conscience says, good man. You do what's wrong, your conscience says, you're guilty, bad boy. Don't do it. But general revelation, which God gives to all men, is not enough to save you. You need specific revelation. You need the gospel. And this is typically what theologians refer to as specific light or specific revelation. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that there are some men who will never get the gospel in this life. And some non-Christians will say, ah, you Christians, you say there's salvation in no one else, as Peter said. You say that Jesus is the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You're bigoted. You mean to tell me that God's going to send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he's never heard? That seems unjust and unkind. I don't accept that kind of God. Well, number one, God doesn't send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he never heard. God sends him to hell because he's rejected the revelation that he has been given. All men have general revelation. And the principle that's taught in this gospel and in other places, but we'll see it in the 12th chapter, that light responded to brings more light. That when you respond to the light that God has given you, he'll give you more light. But some men never get the gospel because they don't respond to the revelation God has given them. By the way, God practices what he preaches. He tells me in the Sermon on the Mount that I am not to cast my pearl before swine. That is, when there's an utter contempt for the holy things of God, God says, be quiet. Don't tell him anymore. Withhold the gospel pearl. And God does it himself. Very often, God will withhold truth from a man because he has not responded to the light that God has given to him. But God wants to give men light, and so we're introduced to John the Baptist here in verse 6. Notice, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John was no angel. He had no spark of divinity. He was just a man, but he had an extraordinary call. He was sent from God. Now, by no means did he fit the prescribed mold of his day. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He was not a Heronian. He was not a priest. He was not a Levite. He was not a scribe. He didn't look religious. He didn't even smell religious. But verse 7 says precisely why he came. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the lie. 
John came as a witness to turn people around so they could see the light. Now, it's rather interesting that God referred to John with this specialized word for witness. It's the Greek word martyria. We get our English word directly from it, martyr, because a martyr is what John was. Webster defines a martyr as one who voluntarily suffers death as the penalty for witnessing. And you know that's what happened to John the Baptist. He had his head cut off for preaching the truth. He came as a witness, but he became a martyr. And if you've read the other Gospels, you know that he did not come with all the trappings of pomp and ceremony. He just did what believers are supposed to do. He pointed men to the Lord Jesus Christ. In modern evangelical terms, we would say he was one beggar, showing other beggars where they can find bread. Now, notice of him. It goes on and it says in verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. John is not the true light. And the apostle wants to make that clear. Christ is the true light. John was the lamp, not the light. He was the wick, not the flame. He came to bear witness of the light of the one here described as coming into the world. Now, the word world here it has many different usages in the New Testament. And of course, context always uh, determines its meaning. Very often it refers to the universe. But plainly here, it refers not to a place, but to people. Verse 10 tells us that the world did not know or recognize him. This is a reference here to people. It's a reference to the human race for whom Christ came. Now, it would be a great mistake to say that the very first visit Christ ever made into this world was there at that Bethlehem major. No, the one who made the world never left the world. He's not some kind of absentee landlord ever since the creation, ever since he made it. Colossians says he has sustained it. And the scripture says he enlightens every human person. There's a sense in which he has enlightened every man, first through creation and conscience and general revelation. But as he will also say in John 16, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he promised when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the great tragedy, though, is that the world very often will not and did not recognize him. Notice verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world didn't recognize him. Now, the world will often congratulate itself on what they believe is superior wisdom on their own enlightenment, but they did not know him, which is really a picture of the rebellious nature of man. It is a picture of the hardness of man's heart. He's like a stone. He's like a piece of sculpture that will not respond to the sculptor, to the creator who wants him to see. And so when he came to the world, the world did not know him. But not only did the world not know him, his own people did not know him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, according to verse 9, the light was coming into the world, which really describes a continual process. But in verse 11 and 12, he's describing here a decisive event. Verses 9 and 10 describe all of God's work before Christ came into the world. Verses in 11 and 12 describe a specific time frame right up to the very present. Now, follow it here. When Jesus came to his own people, his own received him not. When he came to the nation of Israel, the Jew 
they did not embrace him. Now, you would have thought they would have embraced him, that they would have recognized him. I mean, God had prepared them for centuries. There were two millennia from Abraham to Christ. You would have thought they would have claimed him. They would have welcomed him. They would have enthroned him, that they would have sat down and worshiped before him, but they did not. He came to his own, and his own received him not, and they did not receive him for the same reason they did not receive the prophets. Not because they lacked light, but because they would not respond to the light that they had. And so they did not come to the true light. They just embraced the copies of light. Oh, they were content with the copies. Oh, they had the law of Moses. They had the sacrificial system. They had the temple, and with that they were satisfied. But they could not understand that Jesus was the Messiah, as he will point out later in this gospel, because they didn't want to. They could not believe the Bible says, because they would not believe. There was a decision in their heart that Jesus will describe, that Paul will explain in his epistle to the Romans, because they were self-righteous. They had a zeal for God, Paul says, but not in accordance with knowledge. And they rejected Christ as the Savior of the world for the same reason men do today. They don't see their need for a Savior. They feel like everything's okay between them and their God that they're good enough to somehow be accepted before a holy, infinite God when God says they are not. So throughout this gospel, the Lord Jesus will teach that he is the fulfillment of the law, that it's not enough to be born a Jew. You must be born again. It's not enough to witness his works and to see his miracles and to hear his words. You must come in faith to him. And so here were the Jewish people. He came to his own, but his own received him not. They chose not to walk in his way. Oh, he was the truth, but they chose not to believe what he said. He was the life, but they crucified him. But that did not stop God. Those who heard and did not believe did not stop the work of God, verse 12. But, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, some of your translations say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power. And that was certainly a good translation in the 17th century. But the word power here is not dunamis. It's not speaking of physical power like dynamite. It's speaking of spiritual power, of delegated authority. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, the delegated power to become children of God. To those who welcomed him, to those who opened the portals of their heart, he gave the right to become. You ought to circle that, underscore it in your Bible, that word become, because it indicates a change of status. He gave them the right to become children of God. Now, some of them were Jews, and some of them were Gentiles. National origin was of no consequence. The important thing is that they had received him, and the world had rejected him, and for the most part, his own people. The point he's going to make in John 8 is it's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. You must receive the one God made flesh. And so God says when you receive him, he gives you the right to become, he gives you a new status before him, a child of God. Now, I know preachers very often, even politicians, They'll refer to humanity in a very general sense as children of God. That we're all children of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are not all children of God. Now, I suppose in a creative sense we are, and that we're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. But the Bible is very clear 
that until you receive Christ, God does not give you the authority, the right to become one of his children. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 001B. Maybe you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. Don't forget that you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.